So should we start? Let's yeah. do it. Welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, Canada's oldest environmental news hour. And here we still are doing environmental news discussion. And uh, we also might be heard on your local community radio station, which is lovely. And my name is David Hostetter. I'm Stephen Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Latour. Thanks for joining us again. Yes. Or for the first time. Probably it's your first time because usually... Usually people don't return after they hear the kind of intensity that happens on this program. Oh my goodness, it's too much to handle. Our, yeah, our bounce rate is real high. We're just, we're, we're spitting too much lava on this thing. <laughs> we're going to, Stefan's going to interview in a few minutes, Carolyn Bruyette from... Climate Action Climate, Network Canada. Climate Action Network Canada, right. Yeah, she's the national policy manager. She's the national policy manager for that organization. I mean, they're going to talk about... Um, that emissions cap that was being proposed for the oil sands, right? That we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I think. Yeah, exactly. The the feds, the liberals, when they ran on, uh, when they ran in the last election, they promised some kind of emissions cap or said that that was a part of their plan. And a Paul, a paper came out basically talking about the options about what they could do. Is that from the government? They put it out. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And you'll also be talking about the bill in the states that passed. Yes, exactly. We promised a bit more of a, di- a dive in with, with people who are more knowledgeable than us. Uh, and thankfully, uh, Carolyn is dramatically more knowledgeable than us, especially about these kind of topics. And so, yeah, we talk a bunch about uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and then also the ways that it should influence Canadian policy. You know, the ways where it is actually better than stuff we have done. There's still a lot of ways that Canada's policy has is is further along, but there's also some ways that this puts the United States actually, you know, further ahead, even though they've, you know, started 30 years late. All right. And before we get into a little bit of environmental news, Lauren recently read an article in the Washington Post. Was it about Stephen? Is it about Guy Beau, our climate, our environment minister? So it kind of was. The title, it's a great title. Canada's one-time Green Jesus OK's Oil Mega Project. So to be honest, <laughs> if I'm being real, I don't I don't technically know why it was released right now because the decision on Vedenord was made several months ago. Um so so I was talking to my friends about it. I was like, is this a piece that we missed that's been re-edited and re-released or or, or what's up? Anyway, either way, it came out and it's kind of it's Talking about the about several months ago, wherein the, the government approved this offshore oil and gas project, but it kind of uses that story to talk about Stephen Gibo, our climate change and environment minister, um, and his past. As we all know, he used to be in Greenpeace. He was a co-founder of Equiterre in the 90s. Um, and like, and and when we say he was he used to work for Greenpeace. We mean like he was like rappelling down buildings and like doing those really flashy Greenpeace demonstrations that like that we kind of think of when we think about like a classic 
capital G Greenpeace activist and was was calling for the kind of action that climate activists today are calling for that you and me are calling for and and what does it mean that that kind of um person is now an environment and climate change minister and and like sort of like what does it mean for him that he has to approve projects like Bajanor because he does say at one point he's quoted saying like if this was a decision I got to make on my own this isn't the choice I would have made um and I don't know it's just kind of this surprising deep dive from an American paper by by Canadian journalists by Canadian correspondents to the Washington Post but but still it's like this American newspaper doing this deep dive into our environment climate change minister in this kind of like deeply nuanced kind of compassionate way that still makes a point of throwing into relief like how poorly Canada is doing um, when it comes to climate not just on the global stage but nationally as well it was yeah I don't know I was surprised by it just kind of wanted to encourage people to read it and for once with the with the Washington Post it's not behind a paywall which is great so anyone can go and read it and you don't have to pay a bunch of money for it. Well, there you go. I find it very funny that they are like, you know what the one piece everyone really needs to read is this deep dive into Canada's climate minister. Like that's, that's what everyone needs access to forget all the COVID information you might need or all the stuff that might really directly impact you, America. You all need to know about the failings of Canada's green Jesus. This is the piece of information you must get for free. No, totally. And I think I and, and I think again, like I was just surprised because like it's such a it's it's such a clickbaity title, right? Yeah. Canada's former green Jesus. Um, and of course they're using a photo where he does have like his long beard and he does look a little bit sort of like prophetic and Jesus-y. So <laughs> it 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 works. Anyway, just wanted to encourage people to read it. And and I mean, it's not like I like came away from it being like, oh, I'm such a bleeding heart for Gibo now, but it it I don't know. It's interesting to think of our politicians as people, but also at the same time, it's like we can think about him as an individual and sit here and sort of like be armchair philosophists, philosoph philosophists, oh my goodness, armchair <laughs> psychologists, whoa, not a real word, um, <laughs> about him till the cows come home. Um, and ultimately what you've got is somebody who like has the best of intentions, knows the science better than you or I ever possibly will, and still has to tow a party line and like it's just a demonstration of like quote unquote how broken our political system is you know what i mean that like it doesn't matter that this man has been put in the position because of who he is and who he was he still has to uphold the ideals of this like supremely neoliberal centrist party that has been corporately captured yeah and i, I think that is actually maybe the most interesting and useful way to think about gibo you know, because like you easily could spend a lot of time just considering him a total sellout and just someone, you know, who never really cared or whatever. And I don't think that's probably true. You know, like there are a lot of activists that I trust that, you know, are, were friends with him, are probably still friends with him. And I, I think that it's probably minimizing to see him as just someone who, you know, decided after years of fighting for what he really believed in was then going to sell out and, and do it. It's that's not a, as useful a frame, I think, as actually looking at the fact that even someone who cares as much as he does and even someone who, you know, who knows everything is still rendered significantly less useful in this role because of the ways that he ends up 
the expectations on him. You know, like I don't think that this liberal government has really had a habit of putting people who don't care about climate change in this role. I think they consistently have put people who care about climate change quite significantly in these roles. And yet we still see ourselves failing again and again and again. And, you know, the other article that we aren't going to cover today, but are covered in a couple of weeks that, uh, that you brought up, Lauren, was about contrasting and comparing the UK and, uh, and Canada. And I think what's especially interesting about that contrast, for those who don't know, the UK has drastically reduced emissions at a time where Canada's have, have increased. But I think it's, that's a useful thing to think about as well, because the UK, for the last 10 years, have had conservative governments. And have you know, and have have had people who, ostensibly, many people in that conservative party do not care about climate change at all. Some may, but certainly not a huge percentage. And so the fact that you can have you know a former Greenpeace person in this position of power in Canada approving Beidou Nor at the same time Boris Johnson is reducing emissions in the UK, I think speaks to the ways that the structural impacts and the ways in the ways that either you know the corporate capture and the centrist party nature and you know the way that the oil industry has you know contr- such such power in in Canada co- contrasts with you know say the UK where that's not the case in some ways and yet and so they're able to maintain or get stronger action and so i think it 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 changes i think how you go about solving the problem i think you know it's not good enough to just get someone even better than Guibault into environment minister. Like that's not going to solve our problem. We have to think more deeply about how we address the whole situation and the whole systems because yeah, the problem isn't just that we have a bunch of environment ministers who are sellouts. The problem is that the system itself is broken in deeper ways than, you know, what we're really seeing. 100%. No, like that is that is exactly the point, especially when you consider that, like, we all hate JT, we're all sick of him. (laughs) I think he's a little bit of a skis. But like, especially when you consider that, like, he and Guibault are buddies. Like, it's not like you've got Stephen Guibault on one hand, and, 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 and a prime minister who hates him and who won't listen to him. They're friends, they will listen to each other. So like, it also sort of throws into relief this idea that, um, not in all organizing circles, but in a lot of organizing circles I've been in, there's like this theory of change whereby it's like, what you do is you, you, you identify your decision makers, and then you identify paths to influencing those decision makers and having them make the decision, make the choice that you want them to. And in a situation like this, you realize it's like, we have the decision maker. We know how to influence the decision maker. It does not matter what that individual person wants within this situ- within within this dynamic. What you need is that larger systemic change happening. Um and and that's something that like I know like I've struggled to sort of like internalize in in sort of like professional strategizing around policy points is that it's like okay to what end am I trying to influence Christy Freeland a she's not going to make the choice I want her to but b just because her as an individual wants me like it's there's yeah there's too many other factors we we have a government we have a parliament that for better or worse is completely well for worse why would I even say for better for worse (laughs) for worse is completely corporately captured by the oil and gas industry so it doesn't matter if you've got Gibo and it doesn't matter if Trudeau is genuinely his friend and listens to him and knows that what he's saying is true and right 
doesn't matter. That's not where the power really lies. And the power is so distributed across the oligarchical class that like it's it's really hard to fight back against it in in the in using the strategies and tools that we have historically been able to lean on and draw on that for instance the UK and UK organizers and activists were able to when they got carbon budgets put into place when they got a climate change committee when they got an accountability act um those same tools maybe aren't necessarily working for us the way they worked for them and I think I think this I think this ties actually in really interesting to the to the first news story that Dave talks about, because the things that I think have come the closest to really shifting the ways that things get done have been, you know, solidarity, you know, have been, you know, First Nations led, you know, pushes, you know, like one thing I saw recently on Twitter was about how the Wet'suwet'en solidarity work, or the, sorry, the Wet'suwet'en protests and uh, across Canada in 2020 were some of the biggest shattering or shaking of our system that I've seen in my lifetime. And part of that comes from the fact that these are people who have always come from outside the system and have entirely different ways of, of setting up these systems. And a and it's a it's a completely different way of actually engaging with the whole conversation rather than just being like, yeah, can we get the slightly better Justin Trudeau in power and that will solve a problem, which ultimately I think you're right. It won't. Yeah. And on that note, please, Dave, can you tell us more about what's going on with the Wet'suwet'en right now? Because it's it's exciting. It's a good pivot. So Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs led a protest in Vancouver last weekend after visiting several First Nations communities around the country. The Wet'suwet'en never signed a treaty with any Canadian government and have been fighting to stop the coastal gasoline pipeline from being built through their territory which totals 22,000 square kilometers. The company is about to drill underneath the headwaters of Wudzinqua, which is the river that supplies water to the area. British Columbia recently charged 15 Wet'suwet'en with contempt of court over their efforts to stop construction, since the court issued an injunction making it illegal to disrupt the the company. Wet'suwet'en were invited to protest in Vancouver by the Tsleil-Waututh Nation's Sacred Trust. Tsleil-Waututh is currently battling the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline that is being built through their territory. This past spring, Wet'suwet'en launched a No More Dirty Banks campaign to try to get RBC to stop supporting Coastal Gaslink. The Vancouver protest is part of the nation's Strengthening Our Sovereignty Tour, an international ceremonial tour visiting other indigenous nations which began on August August 2nd in Haudenosaunee with the aim of, quote-unquote, building relationships based on braiding together the importance of ceremony, land, and the future generations. The Unistotin Solidarity Brigade said in an email about the tour, quote, Indigenous rights, indigenous rights are unique and powerful legal instruments that can lead to real protection for people and the planet. As indigenous peoples, we have always held these rights, and now the legal, social, and political power of our rights is growing. Indigenous peoples asserting our rights has led to some of the biggest wins in the environmental and climate justice movements so far. Lee Fang recently reported for The Intercept that the U.S. company Mosaic, which is one of the country's largest fertilizer producers, successfully lobbied the Trump administration to tax fertilizers coming from Russia and Morocco. The tariff took effect last year, uh, has allowed Mosaic to gain control of 90% of the phosphate fertilizer market in the States, 
And now the cost of fertilizer has soared worldwide, due in part to the war in Ukraine, supply chain disruptions, and sanctions. And finally, Yasmin Danoun recently reported for The Ecologist on a food forest project happening in Guatemala, or uh, one happening in Guatemala, another happening in Honduras. And the organization is called Contour Lines, and Danoon writes, quote, They have been supporting local people to, grow plant, to, grow, to plant rows of fruit trees, legumes, and annuals along the contours of the hills. The root systems help prevent rainwater runoff and soil erosion and build terraces of fertility over time. The plants also sequester carbon and provide the community with a wider variety of food. So far, over 400,000 trees have been planted across 125 villages. And Noon writes of another group in Honduras called the Inga Foundation, which is also trying to curtail the use of slash-and-burn farming in favor of foods that can grow in forests. Thank you, Dave. Um, yeah, so just hopping back to that um, story about the Wet'suwet'en um, nation-to-nation tour they've been doing with, with hereditary chiefs across the country. Um, yeah, it started earlier this month. It's going for another few more days. Um, a lot of a lot of it's already happened, but if you're a listener and you're based out of BC, um, on the 16th, they're meeting in Blue River with the Tiny House Warriors on the 17th. Oh, wait, the 17th is today, isn't it? So the 16th already happened. <laughs> today, they're in Williams Lake. Um, and tomorrow, they're in Prince George, which is kind of like, like the big day. Um, uh, from, from 2 to 5 in the afternoon. So if you want to go and you want to support, um, there's the opportunity to do that in person. The other thing that is an option is... Um, if you would like to, I believe whether you are Indigenous or a settler, um, there's a bus for the sort of final portion of the caravan um, returning to the Yinta on uh, August 19th. So that's what, Friday, I think. Um, and it is open for you to join uh, because they're going to have 10 days of ceremony on the land. Um, what I will say is, from what I understand, they're they're always keen to have folks come and stay with them and work with them and and stay on the land and and sort of work within that blockade to keep coastal gas link out of out of their um, ancestral territory what i will say is that like if you can go please try to go for more than two weeks or a minimum of two weeks um, because they have to invest a lot of time and energy in training you to be there and helping figure out how you can kind of contribute to the community while you're there um, and come with like some skills that you can draw on if at all possible try not to just well not try not to don't go if you're just planning on having like a cool vacation for 10 days like go if you're planning to work and planning to support the community but that opportunity is always available and it's especially available now because like I said there's this sort of 10 days of ceremony um on the land and and that bus up to the Inta is heading is starting on August 19th um if you want to learn more about that you can go to yintaaccess.com that's why I I-N-T-A-H access.com um, and you can learn more about um, that nation to nation tour and how you can contribute. Sweet. Um, and then if you are you know, on the East Coast or in other places, just definitely keep an eye out for the continued ramp up in regards to the No More Dirty Banks campaign uh, against RBC and, and other banks. That is something that's definitely going to continue throughout the September. And so Keep an eye out if you're, you know, in 
some if you're in the West East Coast and you can't join directly in this particular thing, there's definitely more ways to get involved and to act in solidarity and just keep an eye out for for information about those different actions because it's it's certainly not, it's not going away. Um, they, they keep building it. I believe it was a couple weeks ago. Um, uh, that was TMX, wasn't it? Where they like dammed the river. That was TMX, but I did just see oddly enough of all places on like the global TV nightly news for listeners who don't know, because you're not my friends. I am currently staying at my parents' house and doing things like watching cable news. Um, <laughs> and on cable news, they had a story about Coastal Gas Link and how it's 70% completed. Like it's, this company is going full steam ahead with this project. So yeah, it's 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 an all hands on deck situation to help and support these efforts to get Coastal Gas Link shut down. And that includes the, um, that includes like the, the no more dirty banks um, divestment work as well. And with that, we're going to go to some more music and then return with Stefan's interview with Carolyn Bruyette about... About the oil and gas uh, cap and the Inflation Reduction Act in the States. Continue to stick with us during this music break and return to listen to that great interview. My name is Stefan Hostetter, and I am here as previewed earlier on the show with Caroline Bruyette, the National Policy Manager at the Climate Action Network Canada. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. And we actually mentioned this interview on last week's show in part because we were excited to have someone as knowledgeable as yourself to come talk about some of these topics that take some knowledge. You know, it's not easy for uh, for laymen or for people who aren't embedded in climate news to really understand what's good and what's bad. You know, it's very easy to spin these types of things. You throw up big numbers and stuff like that, and that can make people feel very hopeful when they shouldn't be or depressed when they should actually be hopeful. I feel like often these things go back and forth. And so we're here to talk about both the conversation going on about a cap for oil sands emissions, as well as the United States Inflation Reduction Act. But we'll start here in Canada. We'll go into the States and then we'll come back to Canada at the end. This is the hope for the interview. So to begin, can you tell us a bit of the history on this proposed oil and gas cap? So as I'm sure your listeners know, there's been for many years now in what is currently called Canada, a movement to progressively transition out of oil and gas production. We know, you know, this is a sector right now that's the most polluting in Canada. It accounts for the largest share of our national emissions. It also has been growing a lot in past years. Since 1990, this sector's emissions have grown by 87%. So it's quite a substantial reason for why Canada historically has never met our climate emissions reductions targets. It's kind of been this elephant in the room. And so finally, during election 2021, one of the big parties finally addressed this by proposing to put a cap on oil and gas emissions. So I think, you know, on the one hand, we kind of have to give credit where credit to do, is due, which is, you know, 
folks who have been pushing for this to be addressed for years and years and years. This is an interesting policy because it doesn't look at oil and gas production, which is a big reason why our emissions have kept growing up, right, is that we keep expanding infrastructure to increase oil and gas supply. So it doesn't target that directly. However, if it's done right, it could mean that quite significantly we allow this sector to contribute equitably to reducing Canadian emissions and basically finally address that huge overfed elephant in the room. Awesome. And so that's a pretty big goal and obviously not one that is super easy to to succeed at completing, but also obviously so necessary, right? Like there's no way for us as Canadians or as Canada as a country to understand our responsibility to the world in terms of a carbon budget and how much carbon we have left to burn without addressing the fact that we are investing in the future of burning carbon. In no other world would, outside of the ways that oil politics, you know, has its grasp on things, would, would this be reasonable, right? But there's some, some action happening in the federal level about this in the last couple of weeks. And so what has happened and, and where are we at? Yeah. So at COP26, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau stood on the podium, reiterated this key, I think, piece of policy in front of other heads of state. And so the policy has been in development. And then a couple of weeks ago, there was a discussion paper published. So what is a discussion paper? It's basically government laying out its options for a specific policy and asking some questions about said policy. And so it's a moment for Canadians for civil society, for our movement to participate and actually share thinking on how we would like this policy to take shape. And I think quite a key moment for us to mobilize because as we've seen traditionally on previous policy files, the oil and gas industry will be hard at work and already is working on on delaying and diluting the policy. Okay, so what did the, the policy paper say? So basically, the discussion paper laid out two options. The first one was, and so maybe before I I go into the details of each one, both of them were, were market mechanisms, right? Which means that in a shape or another, we would price the emissions of oil and gas. And the reason I think it's important to note that is because we would have preferred to see a hard cap right? Like just a mandate for a regulation that imposes some decreasing levels of emission for the sector. That's not what we saw. What we had were basically on the one hand, the option to kind of complement our existing industrial carbon pricing system. The other one was to cap and trade oil and gas emissions. If our objective is to ramp down the sector's emissions in a way that is effective, that is equitable, and is fast. I think the cap and trade system is probably the mechanism that allows to do that most straightforwardly. I must admit, I'm a little surprised that there wasn't a hard cap in the idea of an emissions cap. Like The wording and the description itself does strike me as and I guess cap and trade, you could argue, is while using macro mechanisms, 
does at least theoretically create a maximum cap. But like from my understanding, when I remember hearing Trudeau sort of run on this, it was about how we had to basically accept that there was a limit to the amount of emissions that could come from this overall sector. And that, to me, requires a hard cap. Because you could imagine a world where oil gets more and more expensive and you're able to sell it for high and high prices. So no matter how high you push the price, it doesn't guarantee any actual decrease. And yet it is surprising to hear that there neither option or no option actually goes as far as actually creating sort of a regulatory cap. So, I mean, before I nerd out a little bit on, on economic history, I want to share with listeners that a cap and trade trade mechanism could still, you know, be a, a regulation that mandates decreases. The only thing is that it would allow trading, hopefully only within the sector, so that the most efficient emissions reductions occur first. You know, if done right, this could still be a hard cap. So I think that, to be fair, that needs to be said. This said, you know, I think that there's an interesting history, if you allow me to nerd out a little bit, around how efficiency became policymakers' first and foremost objective when they are designing regulations or other incentive incentives and mechanisms, basically, to achieve a goal. That wasn't always the case. There are other very valid policy objectives that we need to look at, like effectiveness, speed, equity, right? And so I think we do need to question this drive towards efficiency at all costs, because who benefits from efficiency is, I think, a question does not get asked often enough. Yeah, for sure. First of all, always love the nerding out. If there ever is a time to nerd out about weird climate stuff, it is on this show. So I appreciate that. Because you're right, you know, like, if you can create a scale where the only metric is not actually how much emissions you are creating, but how effectively you are creating those emissions, you know, we exist in this world where we could succeed our way into failure, right? We could be creating the most amount of energy that we ever have in the most efficient way possible, but that still is increasing our emissions. We're still not succeeding at the ultimate number that goes up. Like we are still creating more and more carbon emissions. So there's no way to break that mold unless you change your goal from efficiency to hard limits and hard numbers of emissions itself. Well, exactly. Efficiency basically is achieving something at the lowest cost possible. We're in a climate crisis. Is really kind of reducing emissions at the lowest cost possible our objective? I don't think it should be. I think we should consider if a policy is equitable, right? We're looking at a sector, the oil and gas sector, whose emissions have grown over time, while other sectors like electricity have drastically reduced. So if one sector is not doing its fair share of the national effort to reduce emissions, it means another sector is going to have to pick up the slack. So equity is important. Effectiveness is important as well. Cap and trade systems across the world, unfortunately, have had I would say sometimes relative success in, you know, achieving their goals and being effective at reducing emissions. And 
Yeah, because there was an overallocation of free credits, which is a whole other Pandora's box that I might not want to open now. But all of this to say that we should totally approach this policy with other very valid objectives than efficiency in mind. And that's how at Climate Action Network Canada will be, will be looking at it and evaluating if it's good policy design. Awesome. So that's a perfect segue, I think, to the next question, which is about what you would like to see. You know, if you were able to take what you know is out there and craft the best policy you could imagine or could hope for, what would it be? Right. So a couple elements. As I mentioned, I think, you know, we need to be very careful around auctioning credits, right? So I mentioned the other international examples. I can think of the European emissions trading system. There's also the Quebec, California cap and trade system. Both of those have overallocated free credits, which is something we don't want to see. We want to see all credits auctioned at the start. So that's maybe one really important point from an effectiveness perspective. Then we also don't want to see this system to allow for offsets for companies to, you know, not reduce their emissions because they're buying some sort of license to pollute based on the planting of trees somewhere in the world or what the Paris Agreement Article 6 has created. So internationally traded mitigated options, there should be no offsets, right, if we want emissions in this sector to finally go down. The trajectory for the policy will also be important. We want the sector, as I said earlier, to be doing its fair share of the domestic mitigation effort here in what is currently called Canada. So we need to see a trajectory, an objective to, that is aligned with our fair share of the global effort to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. So at CAN, at Climate Action Network Canada, we've evaluated that that would mean re reducing our emissions by 60% below 2005 levels by 2030. And then maybe one last key point I would note, and you know, this is not an, an exhaustive list, it's more of a kind of high level summary. But one last point I think is that we want to see auction proceeds from the initial auction that I mentioned to be redistributed to communities that are already impacted by the impacts of fossil production, as well as those who will be impacted by the transition away from this sector, right? So now we're looking at this policy also meeting this important equity criteria and making sure that we spread the benefits from this policy to communities. Awesome. And so one quick last question, when do we expect to find out what they'll actually do? That's a very good question. And actually, it allows me to bring in another key piece of things we'd like to see in the regulation is that because of this traditional delaying we've seen industry push for, we'd like to see these regulations be in place by 2023. Great. And so it's an open question, actually, when we'll see them at this current moment. We've been given no indication. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Well, everyone, call your MP if you have a Liberal MP and tell them that we want this to happen now. Okay, so I've already learned so much, but I do want to flip over to the states as promised to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act. So to start again, high level, how do you see what was accomplished and what is left to be done? 
That's a very big question. Um, very big. <laughs> I think a good place to start is to acknowledge that this is the first time in 25 years that the United States Congress passes climate-related legislation. There has been some key failures in past year, notably through initial efforts to bring forward carbon pricing mechanisms. So Bill Clinton tried, the Obama administration tried, these never passed the Senate. So now we have, for the first time, this massive investments package to the tune of 379 U.S. dollars into a wide array of climate investments, right? So you have incentives for consumers. If you want to buy an electric car, if you want to buy a heat pump for your house and electrify your heating system, we also have money that is targeted towards in industry that, you know, should actually have quite a big impact in completely transforming the electricity sector in the States. There's also a good proportion of funding that will be targeted towards environmental justice. So be allocated to communities from equity seeking groups and communities who have been marginalized by the current economic system. So there's a lot in there. I still haven't finished kind of going through it all and taking stock of everything. But yeah, so I think I would start there. This said, it is a bill that had to go through Senator Joe Manchin. Yeah. And that sort of brings us to the second part that I think we need to spend a little, a little bit of time on, which is the, the compromises that are in this bill. You know, there are a lot of people who are coming out and very clearly noting that this is a climate bill that people are celebrating. And yet, it includes a lot of gifts to the fossil fuel industry. And so can you sort of talk about those and the compromises that were made to, to get this thing passed? Yeah. So I think we need to start, you know, with kind of acknowledging the state in which the American democracy is in, right? You have one senator, the senator who has received the most fossil fuel donations, who is a coal baron whose family has enriched itself from the coal industry because of the very slim margin the Democrats had in the Senate, he kind of had a veto over what was in the package. Um, and so that is reflected in the contents of the bill. We're seeing a bunch of poison pills, some very oily poison pills, as I like to say. So for instance, leasing of permits for solar and wind on federal lands is made conditional to leasing a certain amount of oil and gas permits. We're also seeing some leasing being made available in, in the Gulf of the United States, the Gulf Coast, in the Arctic, right? So where key places where folks have been mobilizing for years against the very real health impacts, notably of fossil fuel extraction, the impacts on the land, right, which is really from an indigenous rights perspective, um, absolutely key. And then we've also, you know, heard about this kind of side deal where the Mountain Valley pipeline, which would export gas in the state of Joe Manchin, so West Virginia, would be kind of allowed as part of this 
deal. There's also a permitting reform that legislators will be looking at, which should allow on the one hand to speed up the approval of, of renewable energy projects, but could very much lead to the fast tracking of fossil fuel infrastructure. So that kind of permitting side deal hasn't been complete completed yet. It's still, I think, a very live battle now that the IRA has passed the House of, of Representatives. Groups I've been seeing are kind of shifting their energies towards that permitting reform. But so, yeah, these are a couple of the kind of poison pills that are a part of the IRA being adopted. Yeah. And it's along with that, it strikes me that this bill, and I think partially it's probably due to the way they had to pass it because, you know, there were a number of other things that got struck from the bill because the case was made that it didn't fit the reconciliation package, which is like this archaic way of passing a bill through the Senate that avoids the filibuster when like all of these things are like rules upon rules upon rules it's, i feel like for anyone who's you know been a part of smaller groups that have the seemingly confusing rules the u.s senate appears to have run wild with them they've had 200 years to come up with just unbelievable weird rules on everything but it, it does strike me that so much of the incentives here are like tax breaks right? Like there's not a lot of government doing stuff. There's a lot of government making it uniquely cheaper to do good things in particular ways. And that I think does lead to a particular type of build out, you know, especially like most people are saying this is a huge win for renewable energy, but not a lot of people are saying this is a huge win for say public transportation or, you know, more climate justice initiatives, you know, these types of things that requires the government to be more empowered to take action. This bill doesn't seem to get at that much. Is that, does that feel like a right read for what you've read? Totally. And I think to the, it points to the fact that this bill is the result of political negotiations. It's not a very carefully and coherently thought out you know, government intervention into the economy to decarbonize and reach a certain level of emissions reductions. It was basically like a back and forth about what, you know, Joe Manchin, given the fact that all Republicans were totally opposed to this bill in the first place, would let be in there. So you're right that it's mostly, well, it's only investments. The only stick that's in there is, is a methane fee, actually. The rest is incentives, investments, different types of loans and, and kind of financial mechanisms, but there's no regulation. One key thing that was in the initial Build Back Better proposal was a clean electricity standard, which would have kind of imposed a progressively growing percentage of electricity to be based from renewables. That's not in there. So it is, I think, package that is very much a compromise and very much an imperfect approach to reducing emissions. And that, you know, one thing I've been hearing from United States activists is that this bill gives them another day to fight. They very much reckon with these two coexisting truths, which is that 
it's like a dilution of the existing package, but it goes a long way as, after so many years. And on the other hand, there are some very real fights that this movement will have to focus its energies on. And I think we also need to keep in mind that despite those compromises, what the compromises actually show is how powerful the movement was in forcing Joe Manchin back to the negotiation table, right? Because the pressure they had created on these kind of fossil fuel projects and infrastructure battles meant that he wanted something out of it. Yeah, I had given up. As I've had said a couple times on the show, I had totally totally given up that they would get anything passed. And so there is a, a part of this that remains truly remarkable that we're here talking about a bill that has now actually passed. Okay. So we've now done a pretty good job of sketching out, I think, what they've done. What does that mean for Canada? Or, or more specifically, where does this bill say, put them ahead of some of the stuff we've done? Or what should we learn from this? And what should we do next in response to the fact that the US is actually now spending money on climate change? Right. So this is a budget bill. So it's, as we've said, it's mostly investment. So we can't compare climate policy, Canadian climate policy, which uses a broader array of tools, right? We have carbon pricing in Canada. We have um, a governance framework, the Net Zero Emissions Accountability Act, which makes our government, whoever is in power, accountable to reach our targets. We also have a bunch of policies of regulations in place, many of which are in development, including the oil and gas emissions cap, which we've just discussed, a zero emissions vehicle mandate, just transition act, a clean electricity standard. These are all in, in development. And the big question is, will we be able to um, move them in ways that are kind of ambitious and rigorous, or will we let industry delay and dilute as usual? But so we've, we're using a broader array of tools in the toolbox. And when we are confronted with a crisis of this scale, it's important that we use all of the tools in the toolbox. So what I think the message, the adoption of the IRA sends to Canadian policymakers is okay, we're using all of these tools. The investments tool may be one where we need to ramp up and crank up the dial a little bit, right? So when we compare to budget 2022, Christian Freeland's budget, if we take a generous view, approximately $22 billion of new spending were, were announced. And yes, that includes the carbon capture utilization and storage credit tax credit, but the IRA includes a bunch of CCUS stuff as well. So yeah, comparing these two things, I think it's kind of clear that we need to scale the amount of funding the government is putting into responding and, you know, investing in the present and the future of climate action. And sees that not only through kind of public-private partnerships, right? We've seen this new growth fund. We need to invest public dollars directly in the solutions. Amazing. And so if there are folks out there who have heard this interview and want to support the work that you're doing and help you make these two things possible, you know, make the Canadian government actually 
put some money where their mouth is on, on investments and ensuring that this oil and gas cap comes through in the best way possible. How can they support your work? Well, I would say go see the discussion paper and try to participate if you can. Some of the questions in there, and there's 22, so it's a lot, are quite wonky. Many groups are working in kind of facilitating normal folks' participation into this process. So groups like Lead Now, Environmental Defense, the David Suzuki Foundation, they have tools that allow citizens, and these are all Climate Action Network Canada members, to, you know, flag their concerns to policymakers. Another, you know, simple way for folks to get engaged in the political process is check out who your MP is and reach out to them and tell them this matters to you. It may seem kind of, you know, how is that going to change anything? Actually, it's super powerful. When politicians hear from the folks who elect them locally, after not that many people, they start to register that this is a file they need to show up well on. They raise it in caucus. And that's how change happens. That's how our movement, for instance, got the Net Zero Emissions Accountability Act to be passed. And this legislation is very imperfect. But the fact that we have this new governance tool that holds government accountable to reach their emissions target is significant and I think a testament to people power. Amazing. Well, thank you. I'll give you a last thought in one half second. But before I do, thank you so much, Kaylin Briette, National Policy Manager for Climate Action Network Canada. Thank you so much for your insights. And yeah, anything left to share with our members or with our audience? I love that you're already talking about members, right? You're like, yeah, exactly. Person now. Yeah. Um, no thoughts, thanking folks for their interests and yeah, get engaged as a citizen. That's what matters. <laughs>